Have you ever noticed or seen on TV some of those strange sightings of, usually it's either Jesus or the Virgin Mary and certain items. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure why it's always Jesus and Mary. I don't know why Joseph's always left out of those items, but sometimes people see some strange things in certain items. Let me show you a few examples of some of those that I found on the internet this week. It's a dangerous subject to, to Google, I'll just warn you. Okay, so, so the first one that we have here was of a rock that was found off the beaten path in North Dakota. It just looks like a rock to me. I'm sorry, I don't see Mary in that, but someone obviously did. The second one is Jesus that was found in a grilled cheese sandwich. There might be something to that one. That one's a little creepy. Do you kind of see it? And the question is, if that happens to your grilled cheese, do you eat it? Obviously, this person, I don't know if they ate or not. They took a picture of it. The next one here. This is Mary holding baby Jesus in a Funyun. Anybody eat Funyun still today? Do you see that? It just looks like a Funyun with like two things that are separated. Here's the crazy thing. That thing sold on eBay for $600. I think I could create that. Just give me some, some super glue, some Funyun glue, and I, I could put that together. All right, number four. This one is actually Jesus in a piece of bread. That woman is really proud of that piece of bread too, isn't she? Look, at here's the crazy thing about that piece of bread. It also sold on eBay for $1,775. How many of you right now are thinking, I've got something home that it will sell on eBay right now, right? That's crazy. But here's my favorite, and the last one's my favorite. This is a Jesus praying Cheeto. <laughs> Can you see it? I kind of see that one. David Sutton, would you eat that Cheeto or would you keep it? You would eat that Cheeto. All right. So it's kind of strange some of these things that people claim, hey, I think there's some spiritual meaning behind this, even though we probably know, chances are it's just a weird looking piece of bread. All right. That's kind of what's taking place today as we're in John chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open with us as we're going to continue our journey through the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, there's a copy in front of you. Would love for you to join us. In John chapter 5, before we jump into the scene, let me try to set up what's going on here. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. And while he's at Jerusalem, he's standing beside a pool of water. But this water isn't just any normal pool of water. This pool of water had a legend behind it. And the legend behind this pool of water was that if you were sick, if you were disabled, if you had a disease, and you were in that water, that every now and then an angel would come and would stir the water. And if you were in the pool of water, when the angel stirred the water, that you would be healed, that there would be this miraculous healing that would take place. Now, in reality, what was happening was that pool of water was being fed by a spring of water. And every now and then, it would ripple, and more than likely, this is what most claimed to be an angel that was actually stirring the water. But nevertheless, as a result of this legend, there would be hundreds and hundreds of people that would be at this pool of water every single day in hopes of being healed. So that's kind of the background of where we jump into our text in John chapter 5. Let's read the first five verses together. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 says, after, the, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, which include blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Let's pause right there. Understand that right here in John chapter 5, a transition is taking place. As Remember, we're wanting to read Scripture in context. So in the first four chapters of John, it was, uh, there was some intrigue about these miracles that were taking place. People were beginning to learn about Jesus, and they were beginning to, to kind of follow him and saying, hey, there's something going on here. But in chapter 5, there's a stark turn that we're going to make, and we're going to see some opposition to Jesus. This opposition that's eventually actually going to lead to persecution. Now, since we have the full Word of God in our hands, we know this persecution that it eventually leads to His crucifixion. But what's interesting about that is the very first time that we're going to see where that persecution takes place, it begins right here in this chapter 5 where we are going to read at this pool of Bethesda. Now, I want you to try to, to picture this scene. So many times when we read God's Word, we almost, I like to say, we become numb to it. We think, oh yeah, that happened, but, but we can't visualize, we can't understand what this really took place. I want you to think about the hundreds and hundreds of people who would be there lying on the ground, lying under the, 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 the colonnades, the porches, just waiting to get in that water whenever it was stirred so that they might be healed. Many of these people who were there were there with what was called undiagnosed diseases, that no one could tell them what was even wrong with them. Imagine how sad that scene must have been. Imagine the sounds of the people crying out in pain, moaning, just, just wondering something that they'll do whatever it takes to get healed. Imagine the smell. They hadn't bathed in weeks. They were just longing to get in there. And while it's almost second nature for us to be drawn towards those that can do something for us, to be drawn towards the popular or um, the, the wealthy, to be drawn towards those that, that have a lot of influence in the world. Notice that for Jesus, it was the exact opposite. Jesus wasn't naturally drawn to the influentials of the world, but Jesus was drawn towards those that everyone else seemed to think that they were beneath them. They were the people that, that Jesus said that they were the outcast of the world. Think about it. Jesus himself, he descended from heaven to earth. Jesus, when he, was, when he was walking, he didn't bypass Galilee. I mean, he doesn't bypass Samaria, but he decides that he was compelled through the Holy Spirit to do what? To go through Samaria. Whenever he's sitting at the well, and then there's a Samaritan woman who has this dark past, he doesn't ignore her, which he could have done, because that's what most Jewish leaders would have done, but instead he intentionally decides that he's going to engage in this conversation, and he's going to reveal his identity to this woman that everyone else said that they, she was worthless, that she had no value to them. And now Jesus is here in Jerusalem, he's at the temple. And out of all the entrances that he could have been at, what temple is he, is he, is he, what entrance is he going into? He's going into the sheep gate, a gate that's named after literally sheep. So Jesus is here at this, this festival. He's just celebrated this feast, and now he's getting ready to go through the entrance of the temple. And understand there were, there were different entrances for the temple. But the sheep gate was the one that the well-to-do Jewish person the, the average Jew would do all that he or she could, mainly he, to avoid going through that entrance. 
This is the entrance where they would take the sheep before they would be bathed in the water, before they would go in and they would present their sacrifice. Again, imagine how smelly it must have been with just the animals there. Imagine how loud, imagine how how much distraction must have been there. It's no wonder that this would have been the entrance that the well-to-do Jewish person, even the average Jewish person, would have gone out of his way to avoid. So, of course, this is where all the outcasts would gather. Not only would they gather there, but they were attracted to one another because now they could have a a conversation. They could live in community because all of us, we were created to live in community with one another. So they're all drawn to this one place. And Jesus is drawn there. Jesus comes to this place where everyone else, they they sought to avoid them. The average Jew said, we will go out of our way. We will go a different way. We will make sure that we go around the temple to go to a different entrance because we don't want to associate with these people. And yet this is where Jesus was drawn. Before I go any further, I've got to ask ourselves a difficult question. Put yourself in this story. Put yourself at the temple. Which entrance would would you have been drawn to? Would you have been like the typical Jew? Would you have gone out of your way to avoid those that didn't look like you, that, that were a little different from the world, that maybe smelled different, that maybe talked different, that had something that looked kind of odd? Would you have gone out of your way to say, I can't be anywhere near them? Or would you have been like Jesus who went out of his way to say, hey, I want to associate, I want to fellowship with these people? Something we really need to think about. Take the scene and fast forward to where we are in 2019 in Decatur, Alabama. The sick, the hurting, the outcasts, they're still here amongst us, aren't they? The homeless, the prisoner, those with special needs, those that society has said, let's just forget about them. Let's just put them in their own special place and no one has to look at them. No one has to think about them. And you just continue to go on your way and continue life as normal. I hope that we can be a church that says, hey, the outcast, guess what? You matter to us. Why? Because you matter to God. That we're not just a church that says that we're open, that we're going to minister if you look like us. If you believe the same things that we believe, if you talk like you do, if you have the same clothes that you do, if you live on the right side of town, that's the people we want to minister. No, I hope that we're a church that says that we are going to seek after those that the world that says you're worthless, you have no place in this society, and that we will come and we will be the hands and feet of Jesus and say, no, you belong here. You matter to God, and because of that, you matter to us. Now, church, that's easy to say. It's hard to live out. Let me give you one example of a way that we can be the the hands and feet of Jesus to the outcasts of the world. We have a large homeless population here in our own community. There's a ministry called Hands Across Decatur. If you were here on Easter Sunday, remember we gave them a check so that, that Dr. Bob Allen could go and get medicine to provide as he continues to minister and give physicals to them. There's a member here, I don't think she's here, um, Johnette Jones. And she has a passion for the homeless ministry. She wants to partner with this Hands Across Decatur. And what she wants to do is have a group of people that will go on a regular basis and minister to those 
that don't have a home, many of those that don't have families. To not just write a check, not just say, hey, we care about you, hey, hey, we're going to pray for you, but she wants to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, and on a regular basis that we would go and that we would, would minister to them so that they would know that there's a church in Decatur that loves them and cares for them and that we are going to do all that we can to minister to them in the name of Jesus. This is an incredible opportunity for moms and dads to go together with your kids to expand their worldview, that their worldview, guess what? It's not the little bubble that we live in. It's an opportunity for those that are empty nesters, those that are senior adults. If you're interested in this ministry where I think Jesus would be today, I'd encourage you to talk with me or with Johnette, and let's continue to minister to those that it's easy, out of sight, out of mind. But notice in our text in verse 5, it says there's a man who had been lame for how many years? You remember? 38 years. And notice what Jesus says to him in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? First thing I want you to point out there is that Jesus saw this man. may not mean much to you, But it meant the difference between life and death for this man who had been an invalid for 38 years. While this man easily probably was overlooked by hundreds of people, there's no telling. We don't know how many weeks or months or years he had been there, and no one had seen him. No one had said, hey, I see you, and I'm going to carry you into the water so that maybe, according to this legend, that you will be healed. But at this moment, Jesus sees this individual a theme all throughout Jesus's life, that Jesus focuses on the one. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were focused on the masses. They were focused on those that that would look um, upon them and say, hey, I'm going to give you more power. I'm going to give you more credit. I'm going to make sure that you have greater influence, but not Jesus. Jesus had always had an intense focus on those that everyone else seemed to overlook. Now, let me pause here for a moment. Because maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, God isn't going to hear me. God isn't going to answer my prayer because my problems just aren't big enough. God's not going to to hear my prayer. God's not going to stop and see me and my individual need because I'm not important enough. I haven't done enough good things for him. Maybe you're here today and you say, if you knew my past, there's no way that God's going to hear me. There's no way that God's concerned with little old me because of what I've done and how I have abandoned him time and time again. If you're here this morning and you feel like that's you, please hear me on this. God sees you. God cares about you, and he knows what's going on in your life. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too big in your past that God is going to ignore, that God doesn't see you in your individual need and your individual hurt, and he wants to come to you in love and in compassion. He wants to meet you right there in your need. The fact that you're here this morning and we're studying this particular text, is that not evidence that Jesus is drawing you in, that he is coming to you and saying that I am your loving heavenly father and I want to meet your need? Now understand, he will answer you. But he may not answer you in the way or the time that you want. He's your loving heavenly father and he sees you. 
But ultimately, God's desire is to draw you closer to him. This isn't a popular thing to say. This won't grow a church by any means. But sometimes I believe God allows you to go through trials, not so that he can miraculously heal you from them, but I think he allows you to go through the valley to draw you closer to him. There's a purpose even in the midst of the pain. There's a purpose even in the midst of those dark seasons of your life. But Jesus asked this man, I think it's a strange question. He says, do you want to what? Be healed. Sometimes I've learned that there are questions that we want to answer that we really shouldn't ask. You know what I'm talking about? I was 22 years old. I was going on, it was either my third or fourth hospital visit. I was still a seminary student. And at that time when we were going on the hospital visits, all we were given was a sheet of paper that had here are the hospitals, here's the, the room number, and here's the, the lady or the man's name that you're going to see. Jack, you'll appreciate this story. I was going to see this sweet elderly woman. I'd never seen her before, didn't know what was going on in her life. I go to Trinity Hospital, I go up the elevator, I find her room, I knock on the door, and I see her, I come in, and then I asked the question that I will never ever, ever ask again. You know, you're cringing right now, aren't you? So tell me about your surgery. Oh, I know now not to ask that question. This sweet lady that must have been in her 80s, she began to lift up her hospital gown and show me all of her scars and all of the battle wounds. I think some from the time that she was three or four years old. And I, I've learned I will never ask a female, tell me about your surgery. If you want to tell me about your surgery, you can without me asking, right? There are certain questions that we want to know the answer to, but we just shouldn't ask them. That was one of those times. But this seems like a, a silly question that Jesus is asking this man, do you want to be healed? I think that what Jesus is after when he's asking this question is not whether or not he really wants to be healed. Of course he wants to be healed. I think that the, what the heart of the matter that Jesus is getting to is he wants to know what does this man see as what is preventing him from being healed of this illness? After all, look at his response in, in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. As I was studying, one commentator said this about verse 7. He said, verse 7 reads less as an appropriate and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the, as, as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. Kind of what I thought as well. This man, he completely missed what Jesus was offering him. Instead of asking Jesus to heal him, what does he do? He begins talking about his belief that there's some powers, there's healing powers in the water that's there. In fact, the possibility of Jesus even healing him, it doesn't even come across his mind. If you read ahead to verse 13, we see that he didn't even know that this was Jesus who was standing there in front of him. Perhaps he thought the best that Jesus can do would simply be to whenever the, the water starts to, to move, that maybe Jesus could take him down and he could put him inside the water. But church family, he had the healer right there in front of him. 
But his, just like so many people today, his expectations of what Jesus could do for him was limited to what he believed was possible. This man thinks because he has no friends, no friends who will carry him down on the water, that he will be disabled, that he will be lame for the rest of his life. But Jesus had something different in mind. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once, I hope you underline that word at once. Not after some rehab, after three or four weeks. No, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day, here's the controversial part, was what? The Sabbath. Now before we look at how Jesus called this man to act after he was healed, I've got to be honest with you. This story bothers me a little bit. My guess is it's going to bother you too when we look into it. It bothers me because this isn't the way that we think that it should take place. Jesus gives something to this man who what we can see doesn't even have any faith. He doesn't even ask Jesus to heal him. And then once he's healed, he still doesn't have faith in Jesus because we see later he's going to go. And when someone says, who healed you? He says, that man over there. And he begins to blame Jesus. And from what we can read in scripture, he never even goes back and thanks Jesus for healing him after he'd been disabled for 38 years. One of the cruelest Results of contemporary Christianity is what some people call themselves faith healers. You know what I'm talking about. They say that if you're sick, that it's because of your faith. That if you'll pray more, if you'll, if you'll believe more in yourself, if you'll give more money to a certain ministry, that then you'll miraculously be healed. And if you're not, if you continue to struggle with cancer, if you continue to struggle in your marriage, if you continue to have a bad financial situation, it's not because of God, it's because you don't have enough faith. And it's all dependent upon you. Well, my only problem with that is how does a faith healer answer this story right here? Here's what I know. God does what he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants. Kevin Thompson, who was here with us several weeks ago, went through our marriage conference and he preached that Sunday morning. He tweeted this a couple weeks ago, and I favorited it. It says, I don't pretend to know what God is doing. I only know that God is doing. Friends, we know that God is good. We know that he is present. We know there is never a moment in history where God is ever caught off guard. But I don't stand here, and I don't pretend to be able to explain why certain things happen, why God allows certain things to happen. I'm not going to stand here and give simplistic answers as to how and why God acts in certain ways. Here are three things that I know. I know with all of my heart, according to Scripture, that God is sovereign, that God is in complete control, that nothing happens that is beyond His control. I also know that God hears the prayers of his people, that he is moved by the prayers of his people. And thirdly, I know that in the end, he will make all things right. How those three things fit together, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. But I believe that. And I know that in the end, he will make all things right, but that may not be right now. But I know that we can trust him because he is God and he is in control. Notice in verse 8, Jesus gives this man three simple commands. Very simple. The first, he says, get up, 
The second, he says, take up your bed. And the third is walk. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Friends, we are quick to ask God for the miracle, aren't we? God, here's what I need, here's what I want. We're quick to ask God for the miracle. But let me ask you this. Are we willing to step out in faith when he does answer us? When he answers our prayer, when he comes through for that time, are we willing to abandon what I call our self-sufficiency, where we think we can do it on our own, we don't need God's help? Are we, uh, are we willing to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus once he does answer us? I don't know where you are today, but in your circumstances, maybe today you're dealing with a difficulty in your family life. There's a broken relationship. Maybe there's something difficult going on at work and there's something that's just not right and you're praying that God will show up in that situation. Maybe it's a financial situation and you're not sure how God's going to, to come through in the end. Maybe this morning God is telling you, get up, stop having a pity party and go do the work that I've prepared for you to do. Jesus was pretty direct with that man, wasn't he? I think sometimes we sit and pray about things that God just says, get up and go do it. I've already given you all that you need. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you my word. You don't have to pray about whether or not you're supposed to share your faith. You don't have to pray or not about if you're supposed to go forgive that person. Just get up, go, and do what I've prepared for you to do. And then look what happens after this man's healing. Verses 10 through 15. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Here's the controversy again. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Aren't we always quick to pass the blame to someone else? He had just been healed. He said, hey, that man over there, he's the one to blame. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews, here at Tattletale, um, that it was Jesus who had healed him. Immediately after this man is healed by Jesus, what happens to him? Immediately he's faced with opposition. Isn't that the way the enemy works? How many times have you had a moment, maybe it's after a mission trip, maybe it's after something really great that's happened in your family and things are going well and, and you're, you're studying God's word and you're having this great relationship with him and all, all of a sudden out of nowhere, bam, opposition hits and the enemy attacks you. It happens all the time. We shouldn't be surprised whenever we face opposition. Because friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have committed your life to him, you should expect opposition. Opposition should not surprise us as Christians, especially as we have a biblical worldview. If we're going to say that we believe God's word, whether it's relevant in culture or not, if we continue to hold to God's word, we should not be surprised when we're faced with opposition that says, hey, just if it feels good, do it. If it's good for you, then it's good enough for me. Don't worry, just do what's right in your own eyes, book of Judges, right? Just follow your heart. And if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say the worst advice that you can give anyone, especially our teenagers today, is to follow your heart. The Bible says that our heart is filled with sin, 
that our hearts are filled with pride. We are to follow our hearts. We're deny, we're, we are to deny the lust of the heart, and we are to pursue holiness. We are to chase after the Spirit, not our hearts. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and once you delight yourself in the Lord, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. We like the second part. We don't like the first part, do, do we? We have got to say that we are going to follow the Lord. If we follow our hearts, this will become the most sinful, selfish, me-centered, godless generation that we've ever experienced. Do you see something that we're going through in our world today? Don't follow your heart. Follow the Spirit. Jesus also ordered this man in verse 14 to do what? Something pretty radical. He tells him in verse 14 to stop sinning. How in the world are we supposed to stop sinning? We live in the flesh. We live in a sinful world. Well, all of us who follow Jesus, Paul says that we are new creations, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's for those that have committed their life to Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And as a new creation, if we have been made alive in Christ, then the result of that, the result of being made new, of being alive in Christ, is that we will live an entirely new life, that we will develop new and godly habits. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Understand, friends, once you give your life to Jesus, the next part that he continues to work in your life is that he sanctifies you. That's a big fancy word that means that God sets you apart for himself. That God sets you apart, that you don't just end say, oh, well, I've given my life to Jesus. No, you continue to pursue him. And as you pursue him, God refines you and he sanctifies you. He sets you apart for himself. But understand that's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit that God places inside of you. So yes, we do have the ability to stop sinning. But it only happens when we completely yield ourselves to the Spirit and we deny the flesh. So let's see how the leaders respond. Last set of verses, verses 16 through 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Church, what's missing in this scene here? There's no joyful shouts of expression. There's no men saying, look what Jesus has done. Wow, we are so thankful that this man who had been lame for 38 years, he has been healed. Instead, what do we see? We see the exact opposite occur. Instead of shouts of joy for what Jesus has done, now there's frustration that from the Jewish leaders it's going to lead to persecution. In fact, the religious leaders, they might have ignored what Jesus had done. They might have just bypassed this miracle if it didn't occur on the day in which it occurred. But instead of rejoicing over the work of restoration of this man's life who had been sick for 38 years, the men who were entrusted with the spiritual leadership of Israel, what did they see? Not joy, 
not a restoration of someone's life. Instead, all they saw was their broken rules. I'm going to step out on a limb here. See, I believe that Jesus intentionally healed this man on the Sabbath. I believe he did it to put the Jewish leaders on notice. I believe that he healed him on the Sabbath because he wanted them to see uh, their hearts that were bent towards legalism. He wanted them to see how cruel their hearts were. Think about it. Jesus could have healed this man on any day of the week, but he didn't. He healed him on the Sabbath. I think when he did that, he's pointing right at the Jewish leader saying, this is for you. See, the Jewish leaders had an improper view of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not just a rule that was made up for the humans to keep. The Sabbath was actually a gift from God. It was a gift so that we would stop our normal occupation and we would worship him and that we would set him apart as a reminder that he is Lord over our life. But friends, Jesus is Lord even over the Sabbath. So if he wants to act, he can, right? But the key here, what I don't want you to miss is that instead of rejoicing this man is healed, what do they do? They criticize him for breaking a rule that they made up. See, when God created the Sabbath, he intended for the Israelites to stop their normal work work week, what they were doing in their occupation, to stop for that day and to recognize God, to set God apart in their hearts. This, what happened on this day that Jesus healed this man, it had nothing to do with breaking the Sabbath law. But these men, they were far more concerned with their legalistic regulations than they were with this man's well-being. And all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus continued to rebuke the Pharisees for having this attitude. Time out for just a second. It's easy for us to look at these Pharisees and Sadducees and say, how could you be so cold-hearted? How could you be so legalistic that you missed what just happened in your midst, that you missed the miracle, that you missed this man that thought he had no life and Jesus gave him a new life? How could you have been so hard-hearted? Friends, don't we have the same tendencies today? Don't we have the same tendencies to be more concerned with making sure that people follow the rules, that people do the right thing, that we're more worried about following the rules and checking the right boxes more than we are concerned about them coming face-to-face and meeting Jesus himself? Let me give you some examples. We are great, as we should be as Christians, of saying that we believe in a biblical stance as created by God in marriage. That marriage is created by God is for one man and one woman. Do we have the same hearts for the homosexual community? Are our hearts burdened for those, many of whom are that way because of something horrific that happened in their life, or are we more concerned of making sure and looking down upon them because they don't fit the rules? We say that we're against racism. We say that we're against social injustice. We say that we have a heart for those that are in need, for those that are suffering in poverty, But do we have a heart that's moved into action or would we rather just have it as something that we could talk about so that we feel good about it? 
We say that we want this church to be used, this beautiful facility, this beautiful campus to be used to spread the gospel as much as we can. Are we more concerned with using this space to make sure that it's as effective as possible in carrying out the Great Commission, or are we more concerned with keeping the legacy of our sacred spaces and saying we can't touch it because it's always looked this way in the past? It's something that we always have to constantly work on. Why? Because our tendency is to look down on those that don't act or think or talk or look like us. Now hear me on this before I close. I am not saying that we water down God's word. No, the exact opposite. We stand strong on God's word. But what I am saying is that our ultimate calling as followers of Jesus is to reach people with the love of Jesus. That should be our burden. Our hearts should break. Not that we become legalistic and say, oh, here's the five things that they didn't do. Here's what's wrong in their life. No, I hope that our hearts are broken, that what's missing is they don't have the spirit living within them. I say it time and time again, but it should not surprise us when lost people act like what? Lost people. If you don't have the Spirit living inside of you, you're not going to be convicted by the things that we are convicted of because we have the Spirit living inside of us. In our text this morning, Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders about their what? Their legalism. But at the same time, he confronted them with the truth. The truth that he is the one and only Messiah and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Church family, hear me on this. We can do both. We can have a burden for the lost. We can have a broken heart for those that aren't following God's word. And we can do it without being self-righteous, without feeling like we're better than them. We would never be involved in that sin. We would never live on that side. We would never make those choices that would put us where they are. No, we can have a burden for God's people and at the same time be true to his word. The challenge for us today is that we must continue to struggle to fight for this balance of a burden for God's people, even those that don't follow God's word, and they won't if they're not following God's word, and making sure that we stand true to his word. It's not going to be easy. But if we are going to be a church in 2019 where God has positioned us, who has the heart of God to reach people, and at the same time, we're going to remain strong in our doctrine, which says that we're not going to stray from God's word, then we must constantly fight the tendency that you and I are going to have towards legalism. And we've got to say, God, continue to give us your heart for people so that we wouldn't be one of those people that said, tell me, who is it that broke the law on the Sabbath? Instead of rejoicing over the fact that this man who had been lame for 38 years was miraculously healed by the Lord of the Sabbath. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that in the midst of our sin, that you came down in your grace and in your love and you reached us from the pit and you pulled us out and that you gave us salvation. May we never forget that that gift is from you. 
We haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. It's not because of what we gave to you that you came and gave us salvation. It's because of your goodness and because of your grace. And would we have the same burden for those that we see, those that we talk to every day, even those that we don't see, those that society has ignored, would we be broken over the fact that they are separated from you? broken over the fact that they don't understand what it means to truly live because they don't have the spirit living inside of them. Lord, would you break our hearts? Lord, forgive us for the times that we're self-righteous. Forgive us for the times that we think that because we've got our act together that that's why you choose to love us. Lord, help us to find a way here in downtown Decatur and all throughout our community to reach people with the love of Jesus. To be true to your word, but to have a burden. To do whatever it takes, even if we think it's beneath us, to take the gospel to a hurt and dying world. And Lord, if there's someone in this room today that hasn't trusted you as their savior, I pray that today, if you're drawing them, that they would confess their sin and they would call out to you and ask you, to redeem them, knowing that you will graciously welcome them with loving arms into your family. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.